Hey, all, we need your help. We're hoping to raise $10,000 over the next few months to help cover the costs of a few current and upcoming projects. These include, but are not limited to, a complete redesign of our logo and design work for merchandise with our soon-to-be-announced store. Your donations will also be tax-deductible as we've just turned in the paperwork towards becoming an official nonprofit. Any amount is immensely helpful and we'll personally email each donor a thank you. Absolutely everything we do on this show is to make sure the gospel is heard throughout the world and the barrier of entry into confessional reform theology is as low as possible. So go to our show notes and click the link that says donor box at the top of the page and donate. Now on with the show. I really think it's good to go back to the creeds once in a while. Let them smack us upside the head and say, don't make this more complicated than it needs to be. Christ is coming back. And when he's coming back, when he comes back, you see that tsunami on the horizon over there? That's the judgment that's coming upon this whole earth. Um, that's apostolic. Uh, you're going to be delivered from that judgment because of your union with Christ and all of his benefits save you from that. And on that last day, you'll receive this glorious inheritance. And then you are glorified and enter into the eternal state. And, oh, by the way, Grandma died uh, a long time ago. She's going to be in that, too. Mm-hmm. And your your fifth great-grandfather, whom you never met, he believed in Jesus. He's going to be there. I think we want to keep it at, at, at that level when you're talking to a general audience. Welcome to the Guilt Grace Gratitude Podcast, a show devoted to bridging the gap to the historic Reformed Christian faith. Listen in as two friends, a layman Nick and a pastor Peter, discuss core doctrines of our confessional traditions with seminary and college professors, seasoned pastors, and more. These seasonal episodes exist to reach those outside the church, those in the pews, behind pulpits, and in the academy with rich truths of Reformed theology, and remind ourselves weekly how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. And today we're on an introduction to Reformed Theology, Season 6 episode. We're going to be talking about eschatology today. Very fun and interesting topic. Uh, very popular talk- topic to talk about in the wider Christian community. Um, and our guest today is Dr. Kim Riddlebarger. And Peter will introduce him here in a second. He, he just like all of our guests for Season 6, are affiliated with Westminster Seminary, California. So we will talk about how he is affiliated uh, with that seminary school that Peter graduated from as well. So uh, if you guys go to our show notes in our podcast app, you can find just some resources, uh, how to connect us with us better and how to maximize the value of our podcast. Uh, We always have good resources. Um, There's a link there to a Crossway book that I personally use for uh, prepping for these seasonal episodes. Um, Creeds, Confessions, and Catechisms, edited by Chad Van Dixhorn, Crossway book. I really like that book for this season. 
Uh, there's also just information about and reminders about where to find us on YouTube, uh, Twitter, aka X now, <laughs> Instagram, uh, our email. Uh, there's a local church finder. If you want to find a church that is reformed in doctrine and practice, uh, URC, PCA, OPC, and among many others under the NAPARC umbrella, there is a link that you can click and you can check out uh, anywhere in the country. You can find the closest churches near you. Um, and then uh, there's just, uh, of course, information about Westminster Seminary, California. There's a link, I believe, that you can click and it'll take you right to their website. Speaking of websites, our website, Confessional Podcast Network that we started, uh, that website that has other friendly, like-minded, reformed and confessional podcasts that we are, are part of. So yeah, good stuff there. And I know you guys are excited to learn more about eschatology and we have one of the best so uh on our show today so i'll let peter further introduce kim riddlebarger today yeah we have dr kim riddlebarger who's pastor emeritus at christ reformed church in anaheim california who's minister of word and sacrament there for i think a little over a little over 25 years around 25 years uh, he's a, a adjunct professor teaches when needed at westminster seminary california runs the riddle blog uh, a fun little blog on eschatology and so much more. And then was a former, um, probably will be on again sometime in the future, um, but longtime co-host of White Horse Inn podcast, which I've listened to a ton. And I'm sure our listen, listeners have as well. It's a pleasure having you on our show, Dr. Riddlebarger. Good to be with you. I always nervous. So when I'm on with former students, they know how to take revenge. <laughs> That's right. Well, my revenge starts now because this is my, okay, uh, okay. this is my icebreaker question. Um, and I've, I've looked through your riddle blog. I was trying to find some more, some more dirt on Dr. Riddleberger and what of them I found. So you're, you're born and raised in Orange County and yet you're a Yankees fan. Explain this to me. Okay. I'll give you the short version. I grew up at Knott's Berry Farm. One of the security guards there mm -hmm. was also working security for the Angels. They were building a new stadium. Mm -hmm. So they gave my folks tickets to see the Angels play, but the stadium was not done yet. So it was oh. the Dodger Stadium, June 24th, 1964, New York Yankees against the Angels. The Yankees took the field. It was love at first sight. Um, hmm. uh, Yogi Bear was a manager. Mantle was on his last legs. Um, so I got to see some of the glory years mm. and I've been a Yankee fan ever since, uh, this year has been pretty tough to be a Yankee fan. Yeah. They're we're, not, they're not doing so hot. We're season 40 years. So yeah, I'm a big Yankee fan and I, I mark my life by what the Yankees did that year and what rock songs came out that summer. So it's yeah. like, it's part of my, it's part of my internal wiring. I think oh. they've had their longest losing streak and I forget how many years, like just 40, recently. 40, yeah. 40. Yeah, it was like eight or nine game losing streak, and they spent so much money over the summer, got nine, or yeah. over the winter, got Carlos, <laughs> Carlos Rodon, who's one of their top starters. So I, I went to not high school. I played travel ball with Garrett Cole growing okay, up. Okay, okay. Um, he went to I don't know, I don't know if you know he went to Orange Lutheran, so not oh, so yeah. far away oh, yeah. from where Christ Reformed is. But like I, mm. I like I I grew up with him, so it's fun to oh, see wow. him as the ace. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, he's a good yeah. good dude. You're not going to yeah. find too much sympathy, though, Dr. Riddlebarger. I mean, you guys have 27 world championships. I mean, you know, yep. so. <laughs> well, like anything else, it's a good excuse to clean house, they will. And yeah. So, yeah. All right. No, they're good. Good part mm -hmm. of Even if you're not a Yankee fan, there's such a you can't divorce them from baseball history. I mean, yeah. so 
You got to respect it. You can I just heard. dislike them. That's yeah. Oh, of course. I heard one yeah. person when the old stadium was being torn down said it was too bad because it was like a cathedral compared. Oh to, yeah. Compared to uh, Anaheim Stadium, which was the home of Rick Warren. <laughs> <laughs> so have have you been to Yankee Stadium before? I have not been, and I what? missed my bucket list going to the old Yankee Stadium. My okay. son is going to take me some point. Good. my grandson to the new yankee stadium so that's the I was like i don't know left. if you could be a yankees fan and not have gone to yankee stadium before i just new york's off my beaten path so yeah <laughs> it's far, opposite it's side far. of the country so it's kind of hard yeah. to get over there and the only thing i really like about new york are the yankees so it isn't exactly a place sure. that, you know. that's right so well, what about okay let me ask you this who is your favorite yankee of all time oh marion rivera and don mattingly oh okay don mattingly okay interesting i i could see rivera yeah the the uh the not the sinker the uh cutter the, the baseball's cutter. greatest pitch of all time yeah. came in at 92 so you would think you can hit it but you just like it would just go through your bat i'm a very scrub baseball player but don mattingly is left-handed and that left-handed swings like a coiled rattlesnake spring i mean it's yep. just the prettiest left-handed swing i've ever seen so well yeah. uh, what about <clears throat> yeah i grew up a mariners fan king yeah. griffey jr oh yeah i know he did he destroyed the yankees in the 90s oh, yeah talk oh, about yeah. a beautiful left-handed swing that's yeah. true yep. yeah Absolutely. So beyond your uh, church and academic bio, let our listeners know a little bit more about Kim Riddlebarger. Well, now that I'm retired, I get to spend a great deal of time chasing the neighbor kids out of the yard, which I, I enjoy doing. <laughs> yep. Um, my wife and I are able to do some traveling finally. We haven't traveled much at all. And that's been nice. I'm a Eastern Sierras guy. If you read my blog, you know, I'm, I've got to be in the Eastern Sierras at least two weeks out of the summer. I shrivel up and die. Um, so I've been able to do that. And then I'm to my pleasant surprise, I'm also doing a podcast now mm-hmm. called, the, called The Blessed Hope. And yep. it's nerdy as nerdy can be. <laughs> I, I'm a Paul, I'm a Paul guy. So I did most of my PhD work under Don Hagner. So um I've got years of sermons and Paul's my personal interest in academics. So I'm able to nerd out on that. And to my unbelievable surprise, it's actually done pretty well. Hmm. So <laughs> there's work to do now. Keep mm-hmm. up with it. So mm-hmm. I stay plenty busy, and and I admit, will miss teaching at Westminster. But as you guys know, you live in Orange County. The commute south is just brutal. Yeah, people don't realize sixty, seventy miles anywhere else besides California is just you don't you don't count miles. You count in hours. Oh yeah, it's ninety point two miles from my house. Yeah, and you have to go through the Orange Crush, which is anyway. I'll not quit whining about it, but <laughs> I, I I enjoy the three years greatly. Yeah, yeah, you have to leave really early in the morning if you want to get anywhere on time. Yep. Yep. Totally. So you already talked about it. Nick has already talked about it. So all, all guests in season six are Westminster faculty and or staff. So we've had, um, we've had three quarters of the faculty come on so far and we'll have most of them coming on and alumni serving across the world. So we're going to ask three related questions since you are an uh, West Cal alum and then you've taught at West Cal a little bit. So first, and I'll ask these kind of in order, um, first is how did you become aware of Westminster and what led you to go to Westminster? Second is what was your education like? And then lastly, third, how did Westminster prepare you for both your ministerial and academic career? Okay. Um, I have the weirdest Westminster story of anybody. I All was, right, let's hear it. I owned a Christian bookstore at Knott's Berry Farm, inherited it from my family and used to try and keep up with apologetics and John Warwick Montgomery started a Sunday night radio show in Orange County called Christian and trial. Great stuff. Mm-hmm. Montgomery, Montgomery's a man. She's just, yeah, he's a, he's a fun guy. Yep. So um, he started Christian law school in Orange County 
I signed up. I was the was that Trinity Law or Simon Greenleaf or whatever it was, it was. It was Simon Greenleaf. It's now Trinity Law School run by Ted's. Yeah. And so I signed up. There's six of us, and I got Montgomery and Rod Rosenblatt and Walter Martin, who is the real Bible answer man. I got them basically on myself. And after I graduated and did my master's thesis, uh, Montgomery and Rosenbach pulled me aside and said, you really go to seminary. And I said, well, really? Yeah, we'd like to come back and teach you to get a, a seminary degree. So I said, sure, I'll go to Talbot's right up the street from my house. Mm-hmm. And they both they both turned white and said, you're going to Talbot, no deal. Yeah. And that's kind of struck me. And they said, you know, there's a new Presbyterian seminary coming to Southern California someplace. It's down south, but you ought to check that out. So five weeks before the semester started, um, I'll never forget her name, Lois Swaggerty, who was a register at the time, got me in. Hmm. And I commuted three years from Orange County to the seminary. And um, so I got in because two Lutherans told me to. (laughs) Which is is appropriate for Westminster. Yeah. I guarantee you I'm the only guy that is there because of two Lutherans. Anyway, um, it was the hardest thing I ever did because I commuted. Yeah. And I worked full time. Oh, my gosh. And... It was like being in the army. I mean, I I, I, it was, I was up at five and a bit at 10 and repeat cycle. And I was young and strong. And my wife was a great help me. And I got through it. And and um, the best thing of all is I didn't get a ticket. In all the years I've been commuting to Escondido, really? I am still unticketed. So I thank the Lord for that. They don't have that many cops on the five freeway going down. To, at least not today that I've seen. But maybe, maybe they did more back then. So maybe you I, were... Just well, I would drive a 90, but that's the flow of traffic. So. That's true. Yeah. If you're going down to Pendleton, everybody goes 90. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it was difficult. It was really difficult. And I got out and um, no one suggested it directly, but I think the faculty talked a lot about they'd like students going to do doctor work. Yeah. So I consulted with a few friends and Fuller, you know, was not on my radar, but Richard Muller was. Mm-hmm. And since Richard Muller was as a Fuller, um, I had several people you know, hey, I'd correspond with him. So I did. And he, uh, eight months later, calls me on the phone and says, yeah, I'm ready to sign you up. So I was really discouraged and disappointed. And he'd stuck the thing in the bottom of it. He has, his office looks about like mine or, <laughs> or like Horton's. So it's a good thing. Oh, that, oh gosh. Horton's office is disgusting. Yes. Yeah. Well, so it's a good thing that he ended up calling on it. I, no, disgusting is the wrong way. It's, um, it's chaos everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. It goes more. And the joke was that I would get my diploma and scratch off the F and put M. <laughs> Mueller. <laughs> Mueller theological right. center. So yeah, Mueller was a great scholar. was a great, uh, yeah. So let's end up uh, PhD that way. Yeah. yeah. And then how did it prepare you for what you're doing or what you have done for 25 years and then everything else you've done as well? Well, when I got to wet, to Fuller after my I did an MAR at Western over three years because of the commute. When I got to Fuller, I was well prepared to do doctor work with with Mueller was no slouch. I mean, no. and, and then he was already on his way to um, um, Calvin. Yeah. Uh, Zonderman put up the money to him for an endowed chair. Old man Zonderman, as my dad used to call him. He used to come to our bookstore and sell us books mm. on the back of his uh, Chevy station wagon. Show how far mm-hmm. back I go. Mm-hmm. and old man's honor put the money for Mueller and he went and um but i was i was ready i was prepared and then i did a, my, the balance of my coursework under don hagner in new testament so i have a really odd phd and that's explains my interest in new testament paul so hmm. awesome i was well prepared the seminary did i mean i could never have done it on westminster i came into westminster with the cal state Fortin business education so i could barely read and write yeah and um after 
going through the California public school system, I wasn't ready for Western. <laughs> no. Really tough. Yeah, I'm California public system all the way through. And I've spent my entire adult life trying to get the education I didn't get in college. Same here. Yep. Same here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Westminster really was tough. Yep. And yeah. I, and they, they, did well. they kind of assume that you've been prepared a little bit and you go into like, oh my gosh, I'm not ready for this. Yep. Mm. Yep. I have a law school friend that went and said he went to Hastings in the Bay Area and said Westminster was much harder than Hastings was. Yeah, if you if you know Ted Hamilton, the PCA yeah, pastor, in yeah. he was yeah. he was telling us <clears throat> he went to Stanford Law, and he said Westminster MDiv was harder than Stanford Law. Yeah, I've heard that over and over, and it was tough for me, but I got through it and did okay, and here I am. There you go. <laughs> yeah, like it. That's great. Um, so getting into the topic of eschatology, to kick things off, I'm sure in this day and age, a lot of people, if they aren't familiar with the word, they go to Google. <laughs> And they'll type something in. So even if you do that, a simple general definition you'd find on Google just for eschatology is the part of theology concerned with death, judgment, and final day destiny of the soul and of humankind. And a little bit more specifically mentioned, uh, Christian hope is concerned with eschatology or the science of last things. Um, So my question to you is, are you able to help expand on this definition to like make it a little bit more practical and tighten it up for and how how do you first introduce the definition of of this doctrine to your students on day one of class for example yeah remarkably i've never taught an eschatology class at westminster Mm because i was doing ecclesiology (laughs) and the doctrine of god yeah it's always been van drunen's thing yeah so um i have done some stuff on warfield with covering eschatology but to answer your question i i think given the fact that my audience are what I consider the typical white person listener, which mm-hmm. would be somebody who has heard about Reformed theology, is really interested, may have already decided to go to Reformed church, but they're in process. They're they're leaving where they were and coming to one of our churches. So I that's my target audience. That's where I aim my, my yeah. blog, my podcast, all of that. And in that circle, the Wikipedia definition is way too complicated. And I just say it's a study of, of end things or end times or last things. I leave a very simple definition. And then uh, as conversations go forward, you can expand on that to say eschatology includes far more than just end times prognostication. And mm-hmm. once people kind of get the sense that, oh, you're talking about more than just the signs of the end, who the Antichrist is going to be, what the nation of Israel is doing. Once they start to realize you're not interested in that stuff, then the other questions, the intermediate state, uh, final judgment, all that stuff starts to come out. So I introduce it, study the last thing, study of end times. And let the let the subsequent discussion kind of un, unfold. It overwhelms people if you if you use that kind of a definition, at least in the circles I'm in. And the next question I have is uh, because this season is introduction to Reformed theology. Obviously, we depend on and lean on the cre- the confessions and catechisms, and even the early church fathers quite a bit to explain what. Reformed theology is, uh, even the, what the magisterial reformers were uh, explaining. Um, so my question is, can you help, can we find any help explaining eschatology from a Reformed perspective in our confessions and catechisms and or the early church fathers? Yeah, there's some nuance in the Reformed treatment of the early church, of course, yeah. covenant mm-hmm. theology being the big one, the advances of the kingdom of God. Um, there's just a lot of biblical theology that has kind of expanded the Reformed horizon eschatology. 
But when you look at the creeds in the historic Christian church, eschatology is very simple. Christ is coming back to raise the dead, judge the world, and make a new heaven and new earth. And I think the creeds kind of smack us upside the head and say, this yeah, is The apostles and Nicene kind of to a tease. They just say, yeah, he's coming back. Yeah, and and that's Paul. I mean, that that's essentially the New Testament. So while I agree with every one of the, the nuanced discussions, and I'm part of it, I really think it's good to go back to the creeds once in a while. Let them smack us upside the head and say, don't make this more complicated than it needs to be. Christ is coming back. And when he's coming back, when he comes back, you see that tsunami on the horizon over there? That's the judgment that's coming upon this whole earth. Um, that's apostolic. Uh, you're going to be delivered from that judgment because of your union with Christ and all of his benefits save you from that. And on that last day, you'll receive this glorious inheritance. And then you are glorified and enter into the eternal state. And, oh, by the way, Grandma died uh, a long time ago. She's going to be in that, too. Mm -hmm. And your your fifth great-grandfather, whom you never met, he believed in Jesus. He's going to be there. I think we want to keep it at, at, at that level when you're talking to a general audience. Yeah. And I think one of the things that the Reform do wrong is to assume that everybody coming through the door, hearing this for the first time, has a PhD in, in biblical theology. And, yeah. and biblical theology is great to introduce people outside the reform tradition to the reform tradition because it's biblical you know i go back to the calvary chapel evangelical free church days when you know the church i went to in my formative years was even if you fullerton chuck's lindahl and mm -hmm. on that campus if you didn't have a rarity study bible marked up yep you were probably not a christian mm -hmm. so my world wasn't the reform my world was evangelicals who loved the bible yeah. That's my wife's background. She went to Calvary Church, Santa Ana, not Calvary oh, Chapel, yeah. Calvary Church. And that was the exact same thing. Yeah. David Hawking, my grandmother yep. used to babysitting when he was a toddler. There's, That's how she, yeah, we have her. We have a Ryrie study Bible in our garage <laughs> right now that she got as she was a brand new Christian. That was a so, present for all brand new Christians. So all of it is to say, I read a lot of Greg Beale, a lot of Gerhardus Voss. You know, I, I read the guys in the tradition. They're doing biblical theology. I think you should. And I think it's really important. But I view my job as translating that into that, the words of the guy who loves the Bible and who's saying, what does this make so much sense? This is so much less goofy than, mm -hmm. than the dispensationalism I grew up with. And I think there are a lot of, a lot of guys like me who, it wasn't that I doubted dispensational integrity. Yeah. It wasn't, I thought they were wrong. It just didn't I make just sense. Thought, I thought thing was just stupid. It didn't make yeah. any sense. And I'd ask my pastor questions and he'd get a, a huffy and upset and, you mean you've never thought about this? Mm -hmm. oh. <laughs> yeah, so I went to Biola for my undergrad, and okay. so which is where Horton went, and that's just kind of the assumed system was the dispensational system. Um, and I grew up PCUSA, so mainline Presbyterian, and so there's some things like I just this. I mean, yeah, like it sounds kind of interesting, I guess, and you're kind of understanding this, but like there's a lot of stuff that just don't make sense under this system, right? Well, there's a Red Glory clip going around. I saw it the other day, and and. Um, oh, talking, that's right. The rapture one. Talking about the rapture and, yep. and people say there's no such thing as a rapture. And if you go look at the Latin rapamur, first of all, it's just a shock that Greg Lurie's looking at the Latin text of anything to justify <laughs> any belief he had. That's a whole other story. Yeah. But I've never said the rapture isn't in the Bible. I just said you guys misunderstand it. Exactly. So I, I think the new book on the rise of all dispensationalism from... Um, mm -hmm makes a lot humble makes a lot of sense when he says modern dispensationalists have assumed yeah the truth of the system but no longer defend the system yeah we had him on in july to he's talk a about great, yeah yeah 
So I think he's right. And I think you guys like Greg Laurie and the guys that, that are in the circles that are interested in what I'm doing, they've just assumed the whole thing. They've never been taught it like I was. And so you've got to open up the scriptures and show them that this is, in fact, the biblical view. It's much simpler than the kind of convoluted stuff you believe. And it makes a whole lot more sense. And I'm drawing on the Reformed tradition to, to do that. Here's the resources. This is the stuff you need to be reading. This is stuff that I read. Um, here's a, 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 a shot at it from a biblical perspective. And so, yeah, that's I think that's why the, the creeds are really helpful here, because they do remind us the church confesses Christ's return in judgment and uh, eternal life. And while we can go into... The, it just doesn't know, complicate it more than that. Yeah, just just consider your audience. When when you and I, the three of us, are talking, we can hash out feeling boss at infinitum, right? It's great, it's fun, and it's it's insightful. But to the audience to which I'm speaking, to which you may be speaking, they're not there, and we've got to bring them along. And I, I try to put myself back in the place when I was first converting to all of this. When this was all, when I was sitting in class asking Bob's triple questions, you know, and and learning this i try to put myself what's the guy thinking who's sitting in that chair asking triple questions you know what, what's what's the the listener what's popping into his mind how do i answer that so that's been my focus and, and <clears throat> while i think the reformed tradition has, has great riches and and sure think we should discuss it but i think when you ask about the creed and how the reformed folks and our confessions they treat it much more simply than the tradition has subsequently yeah Totally. Which this bridges into my next question. I want to front it with a kind of a broader one because you've you've written on eschatology and more particularly so on millennialism, which is all three of us are on millennials. Um, wh like what kind of first got you into kind of studying and reading and, and start kind of promoting eschatological views and like in the simpler on mill view? What, what got you into this on the first place? Yeah, a man named David Ramwell. He delivered all of our books to our bookstore. Now it's a very farm delivery guy. Hmm. And he walked in, looked at the bookshelf, and he saw the Hal Lindsey and all the rest of it. And he said, how can you sell this stuff? And I thought, what are you talking about? It's, it's biblical. It's dispensational, right? This is, this is what the Bible teaches. And he started challenging me. And I kind of prided myself at the time. I mean, if you grew up as an evangelical, you learn how to, to beat up JWs and Mormons pretty quickly and easily. So <laughs> I just, you know, I just thought, well, I'll tackle it. And I was on the, the ground, both shoulders pinned to the mat quickly. Who was giving me biblical passage I'd never seen, never thought about, and then uh, that that kind of started it. I was I was really frustrated that I couldn't answer just basic questions. And here was a delivery man just slaughtering me from the, from the text. <laughs> yeah. So my pride was wounded, and that started. And then when I started at Westminster, I was still I'd given up dispensationalism for Calvinism, sure, but was still thinking like a dispensationalist. And as I went through class it was dennis johnson his acts and paul class where he made us read your heart is boss and he mentioned in passing i think it was dennis who mentioned passing a book um i can't remember the guy's name now on the evil the evils the evil in the millennium and it was a book that explained how evil in the millennial age was a real problem for premillennial people hmm. because after christ comes back after he judges the world and does all that yeah how can you have people in natural bodies having babies and then sinning it made so that did it and uh, Strimple and Johnson and Klein, 
I didn't understand Klein when I had him. I don't. It was like a mystery. Mystery. <laughs> I think most still don't time. understand his his stuff. It still needs to be translated into English. I so wish I could go back and take those classes again. Yeah. But anyway, that that got me started. It was a delivery guy that asked me questions I couldn't answer. There you go. Yeah. So. As you probably know, we talk a lot about Westminster Seminary, California on here. I can't even begin to tell you the impact this institution has had on my faith, my family, and the ministry the Lord has entrusted me with. If you feel called to serve the church and want the most rigorous training for gospel ministry around, consider coming to Westminster Seminary, California, a confessionally reformed institution in sunny San Diego that offers master's degrees in biblical and theological studies, historical theology, and divinity. Westminster's approach to ministry education emphasizes a mastery of the original biblical languages, maintaining a small student-to-professor ratio, a laser focus on face-to-face education coupled with an understanding of the importance of having pastor scholars with decades of ministry experience train the next generation of servant leaders for the Church of Jesus Christ. If this interests you, and I hope it does, Call Westminster today at 888-480-8474 to talk to admissions counselor or visit www.wscal.edu. Again, call Westminster Seminary California today at 888-480-8474 or log on to www.wscal.edu, which will all be available in our show notes. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, his gospel, and his church. Three kind of broad brush general camps, quote unquote, are the pre-mill, the ah-mill, and the post-mill within kind of eschatological views. Pre-mill, we can argue all about all day, whether it was popular before the 18th, 19th centuries. But post-mill is kind of of creeping back up uh, again. So can you help us navigate between um, particularly so post-mill and all-mill, maybe less so pre-mill, because I think that's generally understood, but maybe a little bit more on how prevalent um, these were and what are the differences? How do we, like, where do we see these? And um, yeah, some some support for distinguishing between these two. Um, A classmate of mine, a Westminster grad, Chuck Hill, wrote a book called Regnum Calorum, and basically makes a case from the church fathers that yeah. there's a there's a division they can't between people who had heard john preach supposedly and were saying there's a kingdom on earth after christ comes yeah. back and that's kind of the early seeds of premillennialism and it pops up and down and and hummel did a really good thing i think when he explains that the label dispensations was slapped on a certain camp in premillennialism by a disgruntled reform guy philip mauro mm-hmm. so um dispensations is recent you get to the amil postmill debate and up until the 19th, latter part of the 19th, early 20th century, you were either a Killiest, yeah, premillennial, or a non Killiest. So, in that non Killiest camp, from the time of Augustine on, you have a, kind of a two cities thing. Um, Augustine being very much that the, the whatever millennial age is, it's a spiritual thing, it's not a on yeah. earth kind of thing. Yep. Yep. That exists side by side with some. Who are saying that before Christ comes back, there's going to be a Christianizing of the nations, which is more post mill, more post mill. And there's a split in the post mill camp because there are a group we call evangelical post millenarians 
who really did believe the gospel would go to the ends of the earth and we'd see the earth converted. Okay. But that that didn't translate into theonomy and mm. a a Christian state arising out of a converted. Yeah. It was it was the gospel so powerful it's going to go to the ends. And I'm really sympathetic to that sure. because because I first of all throw out the Amil pessimism nonsense. I that just, <laughs> don't even yeah. start me on. We're that. called pessimists and downers, and we lose don't, here on earth. Don't even start because like those evangelical postmillenarians, as an amillenarian, I believe the gospel conquers. Absolutely. It's it's conquering in China. Yep. It's conquering in every persecuted country. Latin America, conquers, Brazil, yeah, everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And you don't see it because you don't have the eyes of faith. And it doesn't translate into secular progress. Yeah. So the problem with postmillennialism and amillennialism is non-killists, postmill, amill, are the same heading until the early 1920s, late 19th mm. century, when we think Abraham Kuyper or Albertus Peters coined the term amillennial. Hmm. It gets picked up by Oswald Alice in his famous old Princeton attack on dispensationalism. Yep. And it gets picked up um, in, in Bob in uh, Burkhoff. Mm -hmm. And Burkhoff in his early work speaks of uh, amillennialism. Mm -hmm. So the two things exist together under the same heading until the early 20th century. Now they've come two different things. And then the question is the nature and character of the millennial age. Yeah. And so Postmillenarians are a bit more optimistic about the, the city of man than I want to be. I'm really pessimistic about the city of man. Babylon the Great, you can't <laughs> DIY it. You yeah. can't DIY it and DIY it and turn it into a, a, a kind of a modified. You can't paint, repaint it and change the flooring to new vinyl and all the other stuff that goes on. They're wanting to see the kingdom of man somehow become Christianized. Yeah. There's not a line of that anywhere in the scriptures, frankly. No progress and optimism is about the kingdom of God and the kingdom yep. of God when it spreads oftentimes provokes anger yep. and satanic resistance yep so I think the whole optimism pessimism needs to be thrown out because I'm very optimistic about the gospel still right. wins regardless the, go the gospel wins but that doesn't mean that the nations either they're all going to be uh Christianized and I I a warning from the old uh pastor at 10th Pres Donald Gray Barnhouse yeah who made the case that if the devil owned any one city in the United States, he was thinking of Philadelphia, mm -hmm. the devil owned any one city in the United States, it would immediately become the nicest city with no crime. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There would be public transportation everywhere. I'll give you an idea in the... Which, this United is the C.S. Lewis argument, too. This is his yeah. this is thing with Wormwood. Exactly. And, and there'd be no crime. There, it would be a lovely place. Every house would have a single car garage with two yep. cars, one in the, one in the garage, one in the driveway. White Things would look peachy clean and all that yeah. stuff. And, and everyone about the kingdom of God. And as Barnhouse put it, everyone would go to church where Christ is not preached. Yeah. So you can have progress, secular progress. It's totally grounded in unbelief, while you can have total persecution that is the expression of the kingdom of God advancing. So I think the optimism postal thing just doesn't work. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's and and I would press back again and say, even more fundamental than that, there is, in biblical eschatology, there is no room for a millennial age, period. Mm -hmm. Jesus and Paul and others are non-millenarian. They don't see the kingdom of God in material form. No. They speak of salt and light, but, you know, Paul's pretty clear. It's a matter of righteousness. Jesus, it's within you. Um, Pilate's questions to Jesus, all that make it pretty clear that the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. 
Mm -hmm. And it advances in places where we can't see and we don't know. And it advances whenever we gather again, the Lord say to hear the word preached in the sacraments administered. Yeah. And you only know that through the eyes of faith. So I think it's a, it's a, I'll get in trouble, but I think one, <laughs> of the re- one of the reasons why there's a resurgence of post-millennialism is... There's I was just about to ask this question. There's a resurgence of Christian nationalism. Yeah. Oh. And if you're going to have a Christian state where you have a godly king, a godly prince, yep. where you have a, a Christian ruler, then with wokeism and crime and everything that's so terrible right now, how are you going to get from that to your Christian state? You have to have some sort of a post-millennial expansion yeah and so i saw this i'm I'm older you guys i saw this occur in the early years of of ronald reagan when there's kind of an optimism yep it went away it's back and it'll go away again because it's not biblical you you read the biblical theologians in our tradition and you come away thinking how on earth can anybody think it's going to get better for christ comes back (laughs) yeah yeah and And we're not and i think that i think people people think that means that the gospel loses here that things don't get better but that's not what we're saying that's not what we're saying and we're saying the kingdom of god conquers even in the midst of unbelief and i flip that around if i can and say it's the post-millennial post-millennial folk have a pessimistic vision because they're thinking the city man's going to improve and it's not yeah now one qualification is there are times and places on earth where you do see great progress of the gospel transforming mm-hmm. the culture. I'd right. argue our own histories of nations an example of that. Mm-hmm. How long did it last? We're starting to lose a whole lot of that Christian baggage. Look at Northern Europe. Yeah. Northern Europe, the home of the Reformation is <laughs> it's, pagan. It's been yeah. gone for a long time. <laughs> and and the, the websites of guys your age and younger are all about returning to Norse religion and Thor and all the rest of that nonsense. Mm, yeah. So... Yeah. My hope, my hope is in Christ's kingdom. My hope is in the Word and Sacrament. Yep. And I hope that I live at a time where there's sufficient common grace that my kids can end up going to church. My grandkids can go to church where the police will actually protect them from invaders from outside. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Totally. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's and that's the reason why I asked that kind of in the midst of this is I don't want this to be totally culturally situated, but it is something that's been cropping up. Um, and yeah, how do we think eschatologically without looking at cultural events and, and seeing how this affects us? And it's like, no, we should be looking at the word, the gospel being preached, the minister, the sacraments being ministered. That's that's our hope, not in does the kingdom of man, does that get changed? That's not our hope. Is this yeah. the kingdom of God advancing? What I expect out of the kingdom of city of man is police protection, fire yeah. protection. Uh, the DMV and the post office, and those I think are fallen institutions. I think yeah. those are postal. Yeah, they're they're too so, far gone. Yeah, they're too far gone. But anyway, totally. Yeah. Cool. I made on some reflection stuff because this is good and it's bringing up some extra kind of stuff outside my next question. Um, I I like most uh Americans, and I I think both of you would said that you have this background too. Is uh the dominant view in America is dispensationalism pre-millennial view and when i was in that view as a younger man i thought that just equaled christianity that was biblical mm-hmm, teaching mm-hmm. and my my top theologians were kirk cameron with the left behind series and <laughs> <laughs> and i was like oh no that's that's the way it's gonna go there's gonna be a chip on someone's arm 
Mm-hmm. It's going to be the mark of the you beast. Got some label on your forehead. And it doesn't matter how great of a person or how much you were a Christian before. If you get that chip, you're there's no going back. You're 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 gone. And then there's going to be one antichrist. And a lot of the, like you were saying, Greg Gloria, God love him. We love him. Uh, like another disclaimer to mention is if you have other eschatology views outside of all you're still Christian. This is a more of a, what's the term? This is a open-handed conversation in-house family discussions. You could be post-mill and pre-mill and still be Christian. Um, but yeah, so Greg Laurie, great man. But yeah, I would disagree with him on a lot of the pre-mill rapture stuff that he's goes hard at. Um, so, and I, as an millennialist, if there is one optimistic thing, like you're saying, it'd be, we know the gospel is going to win out and it's going to grow. And we know the church is going to keep expanding whether how that looks in the details from nation to nation. We don't know on a global scale that the gospel is going to win out and the church is going to expand. But, um, before my next question, because we talked a little bit about post mill, the differences, I know a majority of our audience, if you're just a basic Christian evangelical, you're probably pre-mill and don't know it because <laughs> I didn't know the terms until after I was pre-mill dispensational. How could you answer the, like, I saw some clip headline today, like some people are talking about chips in their arm to buy stuff and all that, that pre-millennial talk, like that's the mark of the beast and, and things like that. What would your feedback be to those things? Well, I I think Homo makes a great point that those of us who watch this need to keep in mind as we engage in dialogue. Premillennialism is intellectually dead. Mm-hmm. Dallas Theological Seminary was an outstanding academic institution. Bib Sackler Journal was considered a scholarly piece. There was a mm-hmm. good dialogue between Westminster, Philly, and DTS. When it came to inerrancy, when it came to... Mm-hmm. You know, all the issues surrounding the doctrine, we were on the same page. Yep. The hermeneutic is entirely different. That's oh, yeah, problem. very different. So I think you've got guys like Greg Laurie who are existing on the fumes in the vase. The perfume has been poured out. There's a You still get a little bit of the SD lauder left in the bottom of that. <laughs> but I see him talking to people who the numbers show that that sort of evangelical who who hangs out in the circle, many of them are falling away very, very quickly. Yeah. And there are a whole bunch of reasons as to why. One of them is, this is a small reason. I don't want to say this is the reason, but it's part of that. End times preachers have made so many predictions. Yeah. And they've tied the coming of Christ to all kinds of passing despots that it's like, the the political protests have gotten so heated and so loud that people are just sick of it and tuned it out. Yep. So I think a lot of the the warnings about final judgment, the warnings about Christ's return, have just been tuned out by the culture because guys like Greg Laurie have it, it just living off the fumes in the vase are talking about the end times and never really making a case for why they're right. Um, I did recently discovered after reading Hummel's book of a book that he mentions from speeches by dispensationalists in Chicago in the 19 late 30s. Well, one of Walbert's first published pieces, by the way. And that book argues for dispensationalism biblically from beginning to end. Hmm. It's a 300-page biblical case for dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. Now, we're in 2023. We're 70 years, 80 years, 90 years past that. And they're just living off the fumes. Yeah. As is the whole of evangelicalism. Yep. So we should not be surprised at all 
that the end time stuff is just part of a greater falling away. And the question I wake up with in the middle of the night, you know, I'm thinking about eschatology, you know, Paul talks about the apostasy and the man of sin and connection. Is the apostasy an event or is it something like what we are, we, you know, mm-hmm. we're certainly experiencing a localized apostasy here in America. Yeah. I think we can, we could say that. So I think end times contributes a bit to that. When you say Christ is coming back, we, yeah, we've heard that before. Um, we're essentially living in Second Peter. Scoffers will come and say, where is this coming that you promised? So to answer next question, I think you, you've planted this kind of sappy, um, best of intentions, but just wrong-headed idea of end times for so long, people just have tuned you out. And then when you, you appeal to the biblical concept of a final judgment coming, and it's going to be the worst day in human history, People blow you off and pay no attention. You're just a fine bread, so fundamental. So I should listen to you. That's the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot, kind of like the boy who cried wolf. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You stop listening to him. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, just, just to, let me ask you a question, please. Yeah. Say when we started White Earth in 30 years ago, there were evangelical leaders known widely to the movement. Mm-hmm. Tim LaHaye, his end mm-hmm. times view, uh, left behind novels. Then you had Billy Graham, you mm-hmm. had uh, Pat Robertson, you had James Dobson, and could go on. Name an evangelical leader today. Franklin Graham. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have the, leaders, you have but they're not they're not intellectually at all um, appreciated or like looked at. Two points: you have Franklin Graham, who's only known because of dad. Yeah, and because of his connections to kind of Donald Trump and all that stuff. Well, that's the second one. The only evangelical names are names connected to Trump. Yeah. Mm. And aside from the politics of it all, Donald Trump's not exactly the theologian I want to be connected to. <laughs> no. No. no politician. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So it's it's bleak. Totally. Unless, unless you're amillennial, because then you mm. trust the gospel. The gospel is going to spread despite all of this. Yeah, totally. I like that. And yeah, my my pastor, John Morse, did a um, as adult Sunday school class on eschatology. And, and he it comes down to the question, what is your hope when you're kind of looking at yeah. the categories? And so my next question to to move things along, because we could talk all about I mean, this is a huge conversation. We could spend hours, but to respect time, move on to my next question, because I've got two more real ones. Um you mentioned Gerhardus Voss a few times is a helpful reformed theologian that's helped you understand this stuff more. He is a difficult one to read. So, uh, but he has a, a term that's really famous eschatology. Within reform circles, we'll say it's really famous, not, not Mm -hmm. outside reform circles. (laughs) So he has a famous line that he says, eschatology precedes soteriology. Why is that statement so accurate and profound? It's accurate and profound by simply stepping back and looking at the box up to the puzzle. Um, To look at the big picture of redemptive history. When we read of the creation account, there's a lot of stuff assigned to Eden that really is telling us as much about the end as it is the beginning. Mm -hmm. So if Adam expands the temple garden, establishes the, the, the place where God and man dwell on earth, then at the end of that, Adam is going to be confirmed in righteousness and glorified because he's he's still human, right? Yep. 
So in whose image is Adam going to be glorified? It's the image of Christ. Christ hasn't come yet. So that tells you that Adam's going to point forward to a second Adam, that, that Adam as a true human is going to point forward to the glorified humanity of Christ, that Adam's need to obey the covenant, the covenant of works perfectly points to the redemptive work of Christ. So the minute you have Adam rebel against his creator, break the terms of the covenant of works, and it's important, I think, to point out to get the next question, the covenant works is not imposed on Adam as, say, you know, the Roman notion of Donum superadditum to get the righteous. Adam was capable of obeying the commandments yep. because he's a creator of God. He's an image bearer. Yeah, Heidelberg 6 to 9. Yeah, he's got in his heart the commandments of God already written upon them. So when he rebels, it's a rebellion. And Genesis 3.15 comes to mind. As soon as the fall occurs, God's promising redemption. And that redemption, the final chapter, looks very much like the stuff that would have happened to Adam had he not rebelled. So what Voss is getting at is the whole story of the Bible is eschatological. Hmm. It's pointing forward to the great things shown to us in the beginning that are going to be consummated at the end. And the ironic thing here is we all millenarians end up talking about eschatology a lot more than dispensationalists do. They're, they're the ones who, who speak about it the most, but they've got the least to say. Whereas all millenarians don't often talk about it, but our whole understanding of covenant theology, our whole understanding of the kingdom of God, the contrasting law and gospel even is eschatological. So the law belongs to what age? This age or the age to come? You know, all of that stuff is read through the lens of covenant theology and therefore eschatology. So you you can't shout boss to Greg Laurie, mm -hmm. but you can open up the scriptures and, and read the Genesis account and explain how. Yeah. Look, You're not going to yell at him. Eschatology precedes soteriology. And he's like, yeah. what are you talking about? But the truth of that is in Voss is that all the stuff you see in Eden appears again in yeah. the closing chapter of the book of Revelation. So we as Reformed Christians ought to know the box top to the puzzle. And I, I'm going to say this over and over again until the Lord takes me home. <laughs> we do not know our Bibles well enough. No, not I at don't, all. I don't know my Bible well enough. Same here. We all have to work on knowing Scripture and in our vocations, teaching Scripture to people who don't know the Bible. Hmm. Because you can't have any of these discussions of people, who's Abraham? Quick little plug for our own podcast here. If you are an individual and you want to help donate for this work, you can go to our show notes, to our Patreon page, as well as our Spotify donations page. If you want to make a recurring donations, they're either $15 or $20 a month or a single donation. You can also do that as well. Those really help us on the back end to give to this work, to keep up our website, to make sure we can pay those who help with our editing, with our software, with our merchandising, all, all those good things. If you're a potential sponsor and you want to sponsor us and, and fill out one of our ads, you can email us at guiltgracepod at gmail.com and we can talk through some of the options that we have. And we would love to work with both individuals and publishers, institutions, seminaries, whoever it may be, as we all work towards our mission of bridging the gap to reform Christian theology. Yep. Help expand our work and be a bridge builder. Yeah. So, Voss yeah. is right. It's up to us to teach boss. To <laughs> make it make sense to somebody else yeah. who does not know what these things mean. As, as I jokingly say, my boss to English translation.
<laughs> that's, that's right. Yep. And my next question is really closely tied to that one. Cause you have pretty much answered my next question too, but maybe another example is because many, it's a biblical theology question. How many, many people associate, like you said, in the beginning of this episode, eschatology to just end of the world end times last day stuff, but it's not just limited to that. Um, so are there's some eschatological examples we find in the old Testament that have direct connections to the new Testament. Can you give us some other examples? I don't know, like there's maybe Exodus or the prophets or Daniel seven or something just sure, to. Sure. Before I do, I think one of the most helpful ways to remind people of the importance of eschatology as a broad category is somebody who says grandma died. Where is she? Mm-hmm. That's eschatology. Mm-hmm. So the whole discussion of the intermediate states also included in that. So it's a, it's a broad range of things. So to answer your question, Nick, take out the box top puzzle, the, the box up to the puzzle, look at the big picture and say, in the Old Testament, we're pointing forward to the reality. Mm-hmm. The reality is yet to come. So when you talk about an exodus, it's a historical event. It's God creating the nation of Israel by bringing them through the, the Red Sea on dry ground, establishing a, a kingdom in the Sinai Peninsula, giving to Israel his law, the sacrifices and so on, all of which point forward to Christ. So we get to the New Testament, Matthew's Gospels, opening with the new Exodus motifs. Mm-hmm. We have the promise of Israel uh, dwelling in the land and then breaking the covenant repeatedly for doing things like treating widows and orphans badly for worshiping Baal, for allowing our children to marry the pagans and so on. Um, Yahweh sends prophets who've been in his heavenly court. They come and they sue Israel. Um, Israel continues to disobey, gets kicked out of the, first of all, the Northern kingdom falls to the Assyrians. And then Judah, of course, is kicked out by Nebuchadnezzar. Israel comes back in the land. They're, they're, um, land, they're, they're tenants in a land owned by Gentile landlords now. Um, God promises a restoration of Israel throughout the prophets. What's that look like? Well, that looks like Jesus' messianic mission, frankly. Mm-hmm. And the restoration is the church. And that points forward to a new heaven and a new earth. So, um, Nick, it goes back to we've got to teach people the big picture stuff and then teach them a, knowledge, a working knowledge of the English Bible. And that's our task. That's the church's task. And I'm, I, I am firmly of the opinion that since the church has stopped doing that by and large, it's in the predicament where people are falling away in huge numbers. Yep. It's left its first love. It's the church in Ephesus and it's lampstand is being pulled out. And what we see is exactly that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. We kind of like we were talking, we so often decry culture for coming into the church. We're like, I, I think, I think we've, we've, uh, we welcomed it. We've said, like, yeah, come on in. We don't, yeah. we're not going to teach the Bible here. I know. Let's put our garage band up on Sunday morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or let's have pizza parties for youth groups instead of catechizing our kids. Or exactly. let's have exactly. topical sermons instead of biblically um, exegetically faithful sermons. Um, yeah, we we have focused so much on kind of winning the world. We've we've become much of the world. Have you guys seen Jesus Revolution? I've not. No, I have. Yeah, I really encourage you to look at it. I yeah, I cannot picture. Um, Chuck Smith played by Kelsey Grammer. That doesn't work right. for me just because yeah. I, you know, was around Chuck Smith a lot. But yeah. um the key point in that movie that I think points to this decline in evangelical yeah. life is not that he embraced the unembraceable. Good 
on him for taking mm-hmm. his yeah. kids in and being a pastor and a father figure to them and yeah. preaching Christ. And I have nothing but praise for Texans for doing that. Yeah. But when the hippie guy said, you know what we really like? We really want our music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, and what Chuck, became, that's what they became known for. And Chuck's, as I'm told from people who knew him, he didn't like it, but thought, okay. Yeah. And he paid the price. His elders all left and all of that. But by doing that, you know, have Maranatha music, you know, have this whole idea of worship as entertainment as a, you're, you're thinking about, I'm going to go watch the, the people up on stage and it's going to move me and it's going to be great. And what left was the category, what does God want me to do in among the assembly of these people on the Lord's day? What does he want from me? He doesn't want that. He doesn't want entertainment. No, of me, not of him, yeah. of me, mm-hmm. the worshiper. And once you make that step, we're still living in the, we're, as the saying goes, we're still cleaning up after the elephants in the parade. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. We got, our, we got our shovels and our buckets and we're cleaning up after it. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So taking this uh, last two questions as we land the plane. Um, so I know we, I mean, first and foremost is teaching the whole counsel of God as we see in Acts 20, what Paul says is what we, we got to do. Maybe maybe some like handlebars for our audience. Okay. I, I know like we want to get from Genesis to revelation, but are, are there some like biblical handlebars we can hold on to for how to, how to view um, end time stuff, eschatological stuff. some maybe like some foundational texts or passages yeah. of scripture that we can hold on to. I'm big on expositional preaching. Mm-hmm. Um, topical preaching is an art and a skill I don't have. Neither do I. <laughs> but I'm but I'm somebody who'll stick with a book and I think I can make it interesting. Yeah. So my advice to people is find someone who'll preach through first and second Thessalonians. Mm-hmm. Find somebody who'll preach a series on the minor prophets who can hmm. you know look at Brian Estelle's stuff and, yep. and look how he does uh, Joan and the Re- and how that points us to Christ. Look at that kind of stuff. Hmm. Get that in your your mind so that when you're you're sitting down for preaching, you're hearing somebody translate stuff in the old testament to fulfillment in the new and the last word you hear going out of the church on sunday isn't do this and try harder but it's wow i can't believe christ did that for me i want to i want to my heart is now wanting to obey his commandments which wasn't the case when i walked in here this morning so i think it's important to hear expositional preaching and if you are a topical preacher preach a series on this but do it from the text Mm -hmm. anchor your topical preaching in a passage and We've got to get back to showing people that this is what the scriptures teach, because when we do that, we have God's promise. He'll bless his word, preach and won't return boy. If we're up there telling stories and talking about the movies we've just seen and what my dog did last week, we can't trust that God will bring and do anything through that kind of a sermon. Maybe to provide like the the negative side for what not to what. What happens if we so focus on singular passages of scripture? We just look at Revelation 20. We just look at Daniel 7 um, outside of the context of the canon. Well, it's a preacher's job and his elder's job to make sure the congregation's hearing the whole counsel of God. Mm-hmm. And ministers, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a time when, mentioning Barnes again, the people who followed him were thrilled that he spent nine years in Romans or whatever. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um I took a while going through Romans, a little more than a year. But if you're, <laughs> if you're bogged down that slowly, you're not preaching mm-hmm. the whole council. Mm-hmm. And and a wise preacher is going to stick to the text, but move it along. And maybe have some kind of forum where you can do your expansive stuff in the Sunday school class that follows or whatever. 
but you got to pick a pericope that I think the most important part of preaching is picking the right pericope, the right oh, passage to preach on. Yep. That's more important than anything else. Yep. Pick texts that keep you moving right along. And as you go through the whole scripture, I can tell you that the scriptures raise topics I'm not interested in, or I'm terrified about preaching because it'll make people mad. Yeah. <laughs> so you preach the whole book and you take your lumps. Let, let God, let people get mad at God because his word says something they don't like. Yeah. You know, you have to learn to do that. Yeah. So, not because you said something they don't like because the word of God says something. Exactly. They don't like. Exactly. And the hedge against my hobby horses on Sunday is preaching through a book of the Bible because God has his own hobby horses and they're not mine. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So yeah. finishing this, I don't know if Nick has anything after this, but yeah, um, I'll have one more. Yeah. Many, many people are used to eschatological sermons. They're used to end times reports. These are like Israeli news or where's the nation at right now? Where's culture at right now? That's people, when they think of this, that's what they think preaching is or warnings about particular cultural woes, just the stuff you talked about, hobby horses. I think generally speaking, when somebody thinks about a eschatology, they think, okay, my pastor's going to tell me about all the bad stuff that's happening in this world and the rapture and all that stuff. However, what, what effect should or does eschatology, like eschatology in our case, on millennialism, whole counsel of God have on our preaching and day-to-day Christian lives? Very simple. It gives us hope. Mm-hmm. In the midst of a chaotic world where everything is going to seed, where we watch people cutting off body parts and undergoing a change and reorientation, we look mm-hmm. at the, I just saw this morning another uh, slash thing up in uh, Riverside where people break into a store and steal everything. You know, we're in a culture yeah. like that. What Christians need to hear is that Christ is Lord of all things, including mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And that some way, shape, or form, he's bringing the course of history and all of its good and ills to the final end. And that end is Christ. So if our, our sermons are anchored in the saving work of Jesus Christ, the glories of his merits, you can preach the bulk of the sermon on its historical context and the, what it meant to the original audience. But the hope at the end of every sermon should be Christ wins in the end. Mm-hmm. And if our people have that, that sense in the categories, they're not going to be afraid that the election of the wrong president is going to ruin the world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It might might ruin the country for a generation, but sure. we, we get a perspective. But it does nothing to the gospel. Right. We get a perspective on things that you put it simply. The church has the word of God as its, as its voice. When it preaches the word, his people will have hope in the midst of turmoil. We talk about ourselves or anything else. We don't have that hope. And we're, we're beaten to death by all the junk going on around us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because sometimes yeah. it kind of feels like, depending on what's happening culturally, we either walk out of the service happy with where the culture's at and how our preacher preached for it or favorably towards it, or we're we come out of the service angry at culture because our pastor has preached against culture. Versus, like you're saying, um, coming out of it saying, "Thank the Lord that Jesus is going to come and and make all things new again amidst whatever good or bad is happening right now." If yeah. you want to, if you want to see genuine transformation, you should come out of a service and say, "Did the pastor preach the word faithfully?" Yeah, right. And if the pastor did preach the word faithfully, then you know, as salt and light, that sermon will have consequences, eternal consequences mm-hmm. that you can't see that do more than any cultural ranting and raving you might do for or against it. Mm-hmm. We have the words of life. Where else can you go but to the people who are preaching the words of life? Yeah, yeah, and. 
if I if I may, due to time, just and you can keep your answer really brief and and not overcomplicate things. But I think this is a good question to end things on because I think this is a lot of people what they're asking. We know ask we know the last day, uh, death is going to be the final enemy. Christ defeats. We know other things like our bodies will be resurrected, raised, and uh, and both non-believers and believers will face Christ on that last day as resurrected bodies. Um, I just want to know how you would articulate to the audience, the general audience, what without overcomplicating things, how you could describe what will most likely happen for believers when Christ the moment Christ comes back, what will believers experience and what will non-believers experience? And what happens to creation? Is it destroyed or transformed to a new reality? That's a real simple question. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Sarcasm? <laughs> what, yeah. What believers should expect is to see the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that if you remember the movie Field of Dreams, when the, mm-hmm. oh, the, yeah. the foot goes movie. through and comes out a wingtip on the, that's exactly the instantaneous transformation into a reality we cannot even begin to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, others, um, well, let me put it this way. I think that when Christ comes back, the transformation will be so instantaneous that it, it will it'll be as though we're in a new creation. Mm-hmm. Now, that said, there will be a new creation, new heaven, mm-hmm. and a new earth, mm-hmm. and that unbelievers should feel, whenever they enter one of our churches, they should feel the sort of Damocles hang over their head. Mm-hmm. Like, people are friendly. They they didn't judge me because I'm this or that or the other, but that message scared the, you know, what out of me because mm-hmm. I'm not right with God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, the, the message of the second coming is pure law to a non-Christian. Yep. It is pure law. It's no hope. Utter, no yeah. hope. But to a Christian, the second coming is pure gospel. It's the yep. best possible news we can hear. I'm going to stop sinning. Mm-hmm. And you guys are going to be bald instantly because the <laughs> eschatological state has come. It'll be a total transformation. So for the Christian, it's it's there is no fear of judgment. Christ bore my judgment on Good Friday. Proof is he was raised from dead on Easter Sunday. The good news is that I have hope that when I take that when he comes or I take my last breath, I'll be in his presence. I'll finally see him as he is. Mm-hmm. Um, you wonder about the family reunions and all that, but reality is so transformed. That stuff probably won't matter. All my questions will be answered. Mm-hmm. Um, my expectation is, is an inheritance promised to me now realize what all that entails is beyond my comprehension. It's not going to be a mansion with a big house and a lot of rooms, but that's mm-hmm. a figurative thing of a, of a heavenly home. Mm-hmm. We, enter, we enter into the eternal Sabbath rest where I, I can stop um, and and worship unhindered. Um, there's just so many, you, you can't begin to, to, to encapsulate it all. It's just glorious. And mm-hmm. if the non-Christian, I mean, the, I'm, I'm just finished going through the Thessalonian letters and it strikes me again. Paul emphasizes what believers receive more than what unbelievers do. But he speaks of a judgment yet to come. And it struck me when I was going through that for the Blessed Up podcast. When was the last time I heard any preacher, including me, say to my congregation, that's coming. Mm-hmm. Get ready. Mm-hmm. Now it's too late for the unbeliever. And then yeah. for the believer, too, like uh, we're going to be in real bodies and we're not going to be floating in clouds playing harps with baby angels. Like we're going to be on a real 
more of reality than we're experiencing now in actual bites and with animals too. I don't know how that plays in. Well, there are no cats in the eternal state. I'm here to tell you that. You're not a dog person. I have have, they're they're gonna be with me. I'm a I'm a dog person. Yeah. I I have to admit I have a cat that lives in my yard that she might make it. (laughs) But other than that, as you say, it'll be so transformed that all we get in scripture are images of material stuff being big and rich and, and fancy because we can't get our minds around the reality of it. As you say, Nick, mm-hmm. it will be glorious beyond all expectation. And while we need to be careful to, to not talk about pie in the sky kind of stuff that isn't attached to reality, yeah. use the, use the types and shadows in scripture to point to things that are so much better a guy living to be 180 is nothing compared to what the eternal state is. Mm-hmm. Children playing with with tigers and and poisonous snakes—that's just a picture of return of dominion to Adam as Yahweh's yep. reef. Yep. Um, long life—you know—all of that points forward to things that we can't even begin to get arms around. That's why I think postmillennialism and premillennialism default—they're looking for a halfway redeem something or rather. Mm. The Bible points to a full and final and total consummation of all things. Amen. Yeah. Well, Dr. Riddlebarger, thank you so much for coming on, for your work, for your podcast. So what we want to do, what we do for all guests in season six, if you want to plug your podcast, where to find it, what you do, Christ Reform, where you're a pastor emeritus, and you, I think you teach Sunday school there. So what time you guys meet, where you guys meet, all that, all that good stuff. Okay. I teach the adult Sunday school class at Christ from church at nine o'clock. We've got a new pastor coming and our worship services at 1030. Uh, I run the riddle blog I have for years. And I also have started a podcast called the blessed Up podcast. And I'm going, I've done all of the Galatians, gone all through Galatians, tackle new perspective on a lot of other issues. Mm-hmm. I went to the second of uh, the two Thessalonian letters and talked about all these eschatological things from, from Pauline perspective. I'm doing a series now called the future, which is, I'm killing time till my first Corinthians commentary comes out. But anyway, <laughs> we'll, we'll pick up first Corinthians. And then the future series, I'm addressing a lot of the questions we're talking about here. Awesome. Yeah, we'll link all that stuff in the show notes if people want to check this stuff out. But it's been a pleasure, pleasure having you on for the first time on this. And I'm sure we'll invite you back in the future for oh, yeah. more episodes if you're up to it. Thank you. Happy to do it. I'm glad to, glad to see you again, Peter, and wish you all the best. You got to get bald and fat, though, if you want to be <laughs> truly reformed. <laughs> I'll work on that. I'll let you know. I'll, okay. I'll eat some Twinkies and, and shave my head. Okay. <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. Of course. Yeah. Bye. Hope you enjoyed today's episode in our season six introduction to reform theology, where all of our guests come from Westminster Seminary, California, either current faculty or alumni who come from and graduated from Westminster and are serving institutions in churches and academies in the U.S. and all across the world. Where we talk about reform theology through the lens of our confessional tradition, Westminster, the Heidelberg, Belgic, and the Cans of Door. I myself. I'm a graduate of Westminster. I'm heavily influenced, obviously, by the institution and love to share this information with those who don't know this tradition as well. Yeah, and myself as a layperson, theologically interested in in Reformed theology, this has been extremely helpful this season and then the previous seasons, the last few years in the book clubs, but particularly the, the focus of this season 
whether you're a layperson or not, uh, having all the guests come from Westminster Seminary, California has been helpful. And you'll get an understanding of why that seminary has been so influential to obviously Peter, but myself. And most especially, uh, my pastor at my church is a Westminster Seminary, California graduate. Yeah, so if you guys want to find us, one of the easiest ways of helping us out is to find us on Apple or Spotify, whatever podcast catcher, but especially those two, rate and review us. And if you can share us, share an episode, share a season with your friend, that's, that's usually how we how we uh, build our, our crowd. 